It's easy to overlook documentation when building an application, but documentation can make or break a consumer's experience. Today, we're diving into the world of documentation to discuss what it takes to write good documentation, the ethics of documentation, and some popular tools you can use to get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Sydney. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. How often have you struggled to learn programming because you just couldn't find the right resource to suit your learning style? I struggled for nearly a year before stumbling upon a website known as Brennan Masters. I've been a long-time paid user of the online learning platform simply because I find the courses to be comprehensive and beginner-friendly. They have the best teachers in the tech industry, and they're one of the reasons I was able to land my dream job. With Frontend Masters, you can learn web development, responsive design, backend development, animations, testing, algorithms, data structures, and more. You can pick a course you're interested in or follow one of the learning paths like React, Vue, Angular, data visualization with D3, Node.js, and more. To learn more, head to frontendmasters.com. Why is uncoupled code documentation bad, and what does that even mean? At Swim.io, they believe developers deserve code documentation that they can trust. Swim's continuous documentation tool helps teams create code-coupled docs that are auto-synced with their code every time the code changes across multiple repositories. Swim helps teams ramp up new developers easily, enable a culture of knowledge sharing, and ship code faster. Swim's continuous documentation pulls from the CI/CD. It is easy to deploy and keeps teams afloat and happy. Swim Beta is now available on Swim.io. Join Swim on their community channel and learn more about their continuous documentation manifesto on Swim.io. Cool. So let's kick things off by talking about why a company or application even needs documentation in the first place. Have you all worked with documentation or like have you created documentation or have you just consumed it? More consuming it than I've created it and... I'm a person that really likes pictures and examples, and so maybe I do a little bit too much of that, but that has always been helpful for me, so I am only hoping that it was helpful for somebody else. I write docs as part of my job. I don't own the documentation for our tool, but we are open source, and so I consult on it for the most part from like an education standpoint. I have also worked on that at other jobs that I've been at, but also I find it's really important. I'm a manager of a team, and so writing down as many processes as possible so that instead of repeating the same thing over and over again, I can send docs to people and make it so that processes are really codified instead of just wong every time that I'm in a new conversation about something. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so there are like a few different reasons why and I feel like documentation is not like a one shoe fits all it's kind of like multi-purpose and we'll talk about that in a little bit um but like essentially we can have documentation for internal tooling we can have documentation for external consumers of open source software like Ali works on an open source uh piece of software um we can have documentation about team dynamics and like team workflow uh so your company or app really needs good documentation for kind of all of these reasons, right? So consumers know how to use your software if it's open source. Like for Spotify, we have open source documentation about how to embed our players on your applications. Um, 
And it used to be that like nobody really wanted to read documentation, but I think that paradigm is changing and it seems like people really do enjoy well-written docs so long as they're helpful. So I'm curious to see what the community thinks about this episode. I think it'll be interesting. Um, I think like a big question is who do we write documentation for? Uh, Because I think with a lot of coding, we attribute that to like, oh, we're writing for computers. Uh, which I guess theoretically is true, but at the same time, we write software for humans and we also write documentation for humans. Right. Like you have to think about it as like, remember, the computer is not the smart one. You are. And you're going to have to somehow like translate that. So the computer is able to do like whatever you're wanting it to do, whatever software that you're wanting it to do. So it's those like step by step uh, instructions to have to like go through and like get processed for the person, for them to write the software, for them to write the program. For, so the computer or whatever it is can be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's important to state that the docs are for people, not computers, but it's also important to think that those yeah. docs are for a specific subset of people usually. And you need to think about who mm. the consumer of those documentation are like what context do they have coming into it? So I have documentation for my team that's internal, but I also have documentation for other teams that's how do you work with my team? How's the w- right way to get in touch with us? How can you add items for us to do? Things like that, because there are going to be different audiences that need different information. Even our external open source documentation, we have getting started guides for people who are just, you know, dipping their toes in the water versus API documentation for people who are really looking under the hood or guides for people who are doing advanced use cases. And I think it's important to think about all of those different personas and make sure that you're writing with them in mind rather than just a generic person that you're not thinking through, if that makes sense. That's a good point. Yeah, I think um, we had a conversation the other day at Spotify about, do we have like an all-encompassing documentation that lists out what features should be on which pages of our application? So like if you go to a show page, for example, what are all the things that I should be seeing on this page? Because we've, we need to maintain feature parity across like the native desktop app, the mobile app, the mobile web player, the web player. And so like, do we actually have a list of that anywhere? I'm sure we do, but um, it's also like you need to surface this documentation and make it accessible to people in an easy to find location. Uh, And I think there's a quote uh, from Ashley Bischoff that says, no one's ever complained that something was too easy to read. And I think that's so true. It's like, if like when in doubt, make the language as clear, concise, simplistic as you can. And we'll talk in a second about what makes good documentation. But, um, you know, Allie, like you brought up like, oh, you should know who you're writing it for. And I absolutely think that's true. Um, But at the same time, we need to maybe keep in mind that not everyone has the same baseline level knowledge. So like, how do we balance that? Yeah. And but I think on top of that, knowing what fits in your documentation versus what fits elsewhere. Like, for example, we have a JavaScript open source library, but explaining to somebody what a for loop is within that is probably not the right fit because there's eight bajillion resources out there on how to write a for loop. And you can kind of safely assume if somebody's at the level of JavaScript that they're looking for libraries, they probably know what a for loop or a function is. But if your desired user is completely non-technical, you're going to have to give them super in-depth 
explanations of everything um, technical. So yeah, I, I totally think you're right that people like things that are as easy to understand as possible, but make sure that you're giving them the information that's most relevant to them. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing is it might not hurt to add like a here's what's expected. Like you should have this baseline knowledge before you read these docs. I think that's actually really helpful I, because I see a lot of like online courses do that. Um, like if, if I'm teaching like a CSS frameworks class, I would, you know, it would be helpful for you to have foundations of CSS um, or, you know, same with React. It would be useful to have a foundation of JavaScript. Um, it could be useful to do that with your documentation as well. So like just having a list of prerequisites and maybe uh, some resources recommended before you start kind of going into that documentation. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it could be useful. No, I agree. Yeah. Like you should be at an intermediate level of React before you're using this thing. I think that that's very fair. Mm, I I will say that like sometimes people don't have the privilege of being able to learn those things prior to using them. Like if they're in a job, maybe they don't have the time to go out and do it. But by linking to related resources within your documentation, like if you mentioned hooks, for example, linking to the hooks documentation, um, that's going to save your consumers a lot of headache trying to make sure they have the right resource. Um, and I guess this kind of leads us into like this conversation of what makes documentation good, because I do think linking to relevant resources is definitely a good one. Yeah, I think personally, one of the most important things is making it so that it's very easy to navigate and there's a consistent information architecture where the there's either a search functionality or there's a hierarchy of information. The way that the navigation is structured allows you to actually find what you're, you're needing. And I think there's a lot of ways to measure whether people are finding what they're needing. Maybe having some sort of thumbs up or thumbs down at the bottom that's like, was this helpful? Or a comment box, like, did you find what you actually needed on this page? I think all of those types of things can make it so that your docs are continuously growing and continuously being updated to be most relevant to whoever's consuming your docs. Absolutely. Um, one one other thing I notice in docs sometimes is that they include proprietary language or acronyms. Um, I've had this issue at like all previous companies I've worked at where sometimes we have an internal name for something and we let that leak into our documentation. And it's like our consumers and customers have no idea what that means and it's not relevant to them. So just ensuring that you're stripping out all of that proprietary language. And on top of that, making sure that you have inclusive language as well, like making sure that you're able to reference clear and concisely, like what exactly is going on with this particular step, as well as not saying that anything is easy or simply do this or uh, gauging a scale of like how difficult that a specific task might be, because that's up to the person actually consuming the documentation to actually decide for themselves. And then whether or not they do want to continue on with the documentation or go to one of the resources that you recommend is going to be up to them and going from there. Yeah, and we'll talk in the next section about the ethics of documentation. Um, this is one piece of it that Sydney had just mentioned, and it's totally a valid one because uh, it literally costs you nothing other than a few minutes to make your documentation inclusive, and there's really no reason you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and I think uh, another thing that I've noticed to make things inclusive for non-native English speakers is to make your passages clear and concise. Uh, so trying to strip out all the redundancy or the run-on sentences. There's an app called Hemingway that you can use to ensure that your writing is really clear uh, and it helps remove bloat. Um, so yeah, ensuring, I think we forget sometimes that 
we have a lot of developers from other countries who are non-native English speakers, but are forced to speak English when it comes to learning or in the workplace. And so removing, you know, any additional bloat from documentation helps them. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Sometimes I I need to be a little bit better on when it comes to my writing as much as as much fun as being an English degree person is uh, I definitely am very much so a person that will put in redundant language. Like even me speaking is the thing where I'm like, I'm saying things way too much. It's way too many run-on sentences. I need to be very clear and concise. So I will definitely start using Hemingway. That's that's a, not a bad resource at all. Yeah. And uh, we're, of course, if you're listening, we'll link all the stuff in the show notes. Um, but I think one other thing that's important to know is addressing common errors. I don't know the last time I saw like really great documentation uh, mm. that included this, but the thing is people are going to run into issues with when they use your software. It is inevitable. So it's better that you address those from the very beginning and say, hey, this could possibly be happening to you. If it does happen, this is why. And here's how you need to fix it. Uh, I don't know. Have you all seen come across that? at all when you're looking at documentation? I was actually going to ask you, like, how would you, like, categorize that, like, in documentation? Because, no, I I don't particularly see that all of the time where uh, it's more like I have to go, like, Google if something happens. Of course, like, using our Googling skills to actually, like, solve the problem. And I'd say nine times out of ten, I'm able to figure it out and solve the problem and then kind of go back to the documentation. But how do you think it would be beneficial for people to actually put that into documentation, like step-by-step, like through uh, the actual steps that you're uh, putting into the documentation and say like, okay, if you get this problem, like kind of a fork in the road, if you're getting this problem, then you do this. If you get this problem, you do that, and then kind of go back to whatever the steps are. Um, How how do you guys I mean, I think in context is, is a great way to do it if applicable, but th- there's no harm either in having like a troubleshooting section of your, your guide. That's like, here are the most common problems that we've seen from mm. pull request or issues in our repository, because often like, yeah, to your point, I'll just go Google the error and have to search through like stack overflow or, um, you know, open or closed issues on the repo. And it can just be like overwhelming. Yeah. So. I think this brings up a couple of good points for writing documentation. So the first one is that if you see an issue keep coming up, that's a really good sign that it's not clear enough in your documentation that that thing is the way that it is. So make sure to include that and have it so that it's searchable as well. So like, I think SEO is actually a really big part of creating good documentation. You want your stuff to be findable. If somebody Googles something, they should be able to find the answer for that thing in your documentation. And so make sure to be optimizing for that when you're writing your docs. The other thing is that error messages are a huge part of developer experience. And so if you can make it so that your error message is the actual thing that's like, okay, you can read in your do- in the documentation about common issues with this here, or if you can almost solve their error within the error message, that's really great developer experience and will make them more likely to use your thing. And so I think that that falls into documentation, but it can also fall into the library and the code itself. So it's kind of a mix. Absolutely. And I think uh, just a couple more points. So what makes documentation really great is Obviously, it has to be accurate, um, up to date. Make sure that you're updating it as things change um, and that you're consistent. I think, you know, this makes 
a big difference between like decent documentation and like really great documentation is like consistency on like it could just be the visuals of it honestly like it's not just about information architecture it's also about like uh how you present that information architecture um ensuring that like on all your different pages like your navigation is consistent making it really easy for your users to find information even maybe just how you reference things like if you're going to be using using an acronym, like make sure that you define it and and you know be consistent with that. Don't like flip flop between different terms for the same things. Maybe yeah. And I think on the creator of documentation side, there are ways that you can ensure these things. So one is a joint ownership model of the documentation, and this is what I've seen at actually a lot of companies. And that is that the engineer working on the feature writes the first iteration of the documentation and updates the documentation to match the new feature that they're creating or any type of changes that they're making to the library. So if they're changing something that changes the documentation, they should be also writing the initial form of the documentation. But then there should also be a documentation owner who then goes through and combs through that and makes sure that the uh, tone is consistent for the documentation, that it has the the appropriate amount of detail, that it has the good practices that you've set out for your docs in the first place. And this is what I've seen a lot of really successful documentation teams doing, that somebody is writing this feature, and so when they write this feature, the documentation is part of the feature. They should own that when they're doing that, but then also making sure that somebody has the high-level overview of making sure that everything still is consistent and good quality. Absolutely. And then uh, I guess there's a concept of long form and short form. Uh, Which one of you wants to explain that? So I think that there should be a combination of formats in your documentation. So long form guides that show you how to put the different things together and potentially even like end-to-end tutorials that you have in your docs. And the reason that that differentiates from a third-party blog post is that it's updated. Uh, Most of your third-party blog posts are not going to be updated, but most everything in your docs should be updated. And so people can go to those long form tutorials of sorts in your documentation and know that they're up to date. And then also there should be short form documentation so that if somebody Googles something, they can find the answer really quickly without navigating through a whole entire blog post. They have that answer right then and there. And those are usually API documentation or shorter form uh, pieces of documentation that you'd have as well. And so I think having a combination of those things is really important so that different users at different points in their journey can be can find their answers quickly and efficiently. It's very clear to me that Allie's a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what I wish kind of was uh, in the for, in the realm of like proper documentation? I'm being reminded of how like I will look up a recipe for something and I have to go through all of like the memories that people share about this particular recipe. They're like long stories about it and oh, these like are the different things that you have to do to get like this recipe just right and all that fun stuff. And then finally, at the end of the page, that's when they actually give the recipe. And that is super freaking annoying. So that, it, it makes more sense about the difference between long form and short form now that you've explained it. So thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> It's so funny because I tweeted that once and I was like, I don't care about your grandma's, you know, best friend, <laughs> Charlotte, and how she got the recipe from and I remember, like, I think it was Rachel Neighbors commenting and being like, I actually enjoy that. And I'm like, 
oh, maybe I should start enjoying it. And now, like, (laughs) the closer I get to 30, the more I'm like, I like reading about your grandma's best friend, Charlotte, during the cookie (laughs) recipe. But uh, to your point, like, when it comes to documentation, it's really not the place. Yeah, it should be pretty to the point. Yeah. (laughs) And not have a huge amount of framing, not each article should be standalone and or sorry, not standalone. All of the different pieces of documentation should be woven together so that people can find exactly what they're looking for. You're not restating what the thing is a bajillion times. You're not explaining how to create a hello world in it at the top of every single uh, page of documentation. You don't want any of that, but Mm. you do want to link to those things so that people can get started if they need to. And that's where having this information architecture that people can easily navigate is really important so that they can find what they need if the article that they land on is not what they need. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that Spotify did really well during orientation was they have this thing called the golden path that everyone who joins as an engineer or I think a data scientist goes through this. Um, and essentially, it's a series of tutorials where you choose your primary domain, whether that's web, backend, data viz, you know, any of those areas. And they have a guided step-by-step tutorial on how to build a full-stack Spotify application from, you know, building it using our design system to deploying it internally. Um, and this internal documentation is so invaluable. Like, if you have the ability to create these types of documentation tutorials for your new hires and you work on an enterprise-level application... 10 out of 10 recommend doing this. Mm, that sounds lovely. <laughs> that sounds so amazing. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about, you know, the talk that actually inspired me wanting to discuss this topic in the first place. Um, when I was speaking at uh, GraphQL Day in Bodensee a couple years ago in Germany, Carolyn Stransky gave a talk about humanizing your documentation. And we're going to link it in the show notes. Um, the talk is really, really great. Um, and let's go through a couple of these points now. As Sydney had mentioned earlier about using inclusive language, but what does that actually mean? I think the first is about gender. I think this is kind of a, a big issue within programming communities um, about using gendered language. So here's an example. If the programmer wishes to uphold the invariant, he must satisfy the function's preconditions. Um, you know, using he as a pronoun. Um, it's not necessary when you're writing documentation and it, you know, is it going to prevent someone from being able to successfully use your software? No, but is it going to be a better consumer experience if you're inclusive to everyone? Yes, absolutely. And it costs you literally nothing to change that pronoun. Um, so that, you know, in terms of gendered language, just take a quick, uh, a quick look through your documentation and ensure maybe you're using um, they or that you're switching up pronouns, you know, for for representative of the entire community and not just sticking with one. And you don't even I, I think that the use of pronouns, uh, they is a great way to start, but even just like as the developer must satisfy the function's preconditions. Like, we're, we don't even have to, like, include um, the pronoun of a, a person uh, in the first place. Just having, like, the title of, like, what uh, the expectation is of the person uh, should be doing that is, like, using the documentation uh, could be useful as well. I think it makes it less professional, too, when you're talking. And was it? Yeah. I don't even know. Third person? I don't even know. Like, yeah. Yeah. When, <laughs> Like first person and third person can kind of make your writing seem a little bit more informal and documentation most for most of the time is considered like a professional 
uh, environment. So yeah, to Sydney's point, maybe let's just not use pronouns at all and keep it very much. What what would you even call that? I don't know. I don't know what it's called. It's like when you don't use pronouns at all. Yeah, I I mm, I don't know. Is it called passive voice? I don't know. We're not. Well, I'm not an English major, but no, it wouldn't be passive voice. But just trying to avoid no where you could use pronouns in the first place there was a lot of discussion around uh problematic or racist language in the programming community uh, a little while back only a few months ago specifically when they were talking about master branch on github and there was you know a big push to change it to main branch um so ensuring that your documentation is inclusive and non-racist in language is is a very like it's a quick way to make everyone feel included so as opposed to using master and slave, use primary and replicate instead. Or as opposed to using whitelist and blacklist, use an allow list and deny list instead. Um, and like I saw this conversation around whitelist and blacklist specifically that was saying like, well, it's not inherently racist. Um, but the argument is like, it might not be inherently racist, but what it's doing is associating whitelist with good and blacklist with bad or right. white with good, black with bad. And like, if you can make your documentation inclusive, there's no excuse not to. So use allow list and deny list. How do y'all feel about that? My eyes are rolling in the back of my head right now. Like, it's really uh, interesting how people like still use the term slave as like another like mm-hmm. branch uh, from the master. And honestly, I didn't know that that was a thing until a couple of years ago. So it was just like, oh, well, <laughs> that I... I kind of understood the connotation, but after like, just like reading some other articles about it and it was just like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> I, I guess that we're not going to be using that language anymore, at least not in my presence. So that's, it's, I, I don't understand the need and I'm not really sure like where that originates from, but it's kind of hilarious and just very eye-rolly <laughs> that that For was the sure. thought. I think the other thing too is that you can set up linters to check these things. So sometimes people mm. mess up, especially if you've, they've been using this, these terms for years and years. And so having some sort of script that checks your docs before they go live, that the right terminology is being used, that your documentation is as inclusive as possible, that words like easy or simpler or whatever raise a bell or allow, make sure that it's allow list instead of whitelist. Like all of these things, you can set up code to make sure that they're being followed. And so that could be a good way to make it so that this is really no lift. And I think like if you're listening to this and you're freaking annoyed at the fact that we are now like, like questioning your words of choice, like is this, you know, it's just language, who cares? It's like, if you're offended by that, you should maybe do a little bit of introspection there and say like, hey, if I can use different words and it makes other people feel more included, it's not that big of a barrier. So like, just get over it. Sorry, but like, I have, no pa- <laughs> I, ha- I have no patience for people who get offended because, you know, words are offensive. It's like, you don't get to decide what's offensive to someone else. If it's offensive, like, just get over yourself and use a different word. Right. That's all. Absolutely. Uh, Sydney, you had mentioned the term simply, easily, or obviously, or a little bit earlier. To your point, like, I, if you're offended because you can't say simply, easily, obviously in your vocabulary when it comes to uh, your documentation, it, it's, it, it says a lot more about your character and what you have kind of dissociated yourself with when it comes to honestly being stuck on a problem uh, in the different kind of, like, 
stages of your career. Uh, I might be using your documentation, Emma, and like, no, I don't want to be told that this is simple because I'm coming to your documentation for a reason. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. it wasn't simple, you know? Um, you noted that uh, Jim Fisher had opened the 2018 edition of Write the Docs uh, in Prague, uh, and their conference had stated that he did a quick search for the word simply on GitHub and found it over 92 million times. These are 92 million references when it comes to the word simply on GitHub. And that's really crazy. That's really mind-blowing that people are still kind of not in that mode of that like learning and curiosity and being empathetic to people that are really just trying to find the answers that they seek without having to feel like they are inferior somehow because they have to look, because they have to uh, do the Googling, do the research that they need to on GitHub and just... you've. On any level, you've needed to research and do something uh, with documentation before. So I I will fully admit that I get super offended and frustrated with myself and with other people when you give me a solution and it's, you simply do this and this is really easy. I wouldn't have come to you in the first place if this was fucking easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just I actually like... I catch myself a lot. It's something I've had to strip out of my vocabulary because it's just second nature. It's just very colloquial language, I think. And, um, you know, it's it's a, a conscious choice that we have to make to strip that out. Yeah, and I think even going beyond that from a documentation perspective, your documentation should be very fact-based and to the point. It shouldn't be like a mm. narrative. It shouldn't be your marketing. <laughs> and so you, you just don't need easily or simply because <laughs> you're not trying to sell this to somebody. You're just showing, trying to show them how to use it. And so it's just fluff. I would say, into your documentation. So it's not good from an inclusion perspective, but also it's just not needed from a good quality documentation Absolutely. perspective. Um, well, if all of this sounds like a lot to remember, Carolyn actually created a language linter called Alex, and it's meant to catch insensitive or inconsiderate language. Uh, so we'll link that in the show notes. Uh, and there's also a website called Self-Defined. I think it was created by Tatiana Mack, and it's a modern dictionary for language. So its goal is to provide more inclusive, holistic, and fluid definitions to reflect the diverse perspectives of the modern world. So if there are any terms that are, you know, problematic or, or harmful, you can generally go there and, and see why. Uh, and there are different labels for like ableist language or sexist language and things of that nature. So again, highly recommend checking those out. Great. I'll definitely be using that. Let's talk about code because a lot of times we're writing documentation with code snippets. And I just want to list off a couple of things that are important to keep in mind. Um, I see this often, uh, as you know, on Twitter a lot where people post images of code snippets and not have an alt tag or not have a link to like an accessible uh, snippet, um, which is annoying for, you know, copy and pasting purposes. But it's also annoying for people who rely on screen readers to analyze uh, images. So anytime you have text inside of an image, it's just bad practice uh, for accessibility. But, you know, at the very least, you should be including a link uh, to an accessible snippet. Um, so ensure that you're doing that. Your, your code snippets really should never be screenshots. Um, you can use the code HTML tag for inline code and the pre-tag for blocks of code. Um, so that's just a really quick win in terms of accessibility there. But um, one other thing I didn't think about that Carolyn mentions in her talk is to use descriptive variable names. Um, it's, it's much easier to follow documentation and tutorials if your variable names have proper descriptive names. So don't use foo, bar, and baz. Actually use, you know, if you have like 
number of clicks uh, on like a counter, call it num clicks or something that like indicates what that variable is holding. Does anybody know where foobar and baz came from at all? Yeah. Because <laughs> I avoid documentation like the plague when they have foo and bar in it because it is so hard to read. Like, what does this signify to me, you know? <laughs> Do you know what it is, Allie? Oh. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily... Uh podcast appropriate but it was uh from the military and like foobar was fucked up beyond recognition and so that's what foobar is is yeah <laughs> you two shocked faces right now yeah yeah what kind of dumb shorthand uh, what that doesn't make any sense going into tech like all of these interesting like names and concepts that people have like decided to come up with that is shocking that is so shocking okay thank you for that explanation i appreciate it (laughs) i'm horrified um okay so never using that again great (laughs) love that the military has spilled over into programming am i shocked no it's from like Um, 1965 to be fair it's been (laughs) before any of us were around but yeah Oh, my gosh. I wasn't even a zygote, but I'm still offended. Um, (laughs) So, all right. To move off of that strange note, um, don't you love that? When you're like, I wonder where this came from. And it's like, like not cool. (laughs) It's weird. All right. (laughs) So, Allie had mentioned information architecture previously. um, But really quickly, like, the structure of your documentation is important. And I think when you are documenting new features, for example... Um, you know, one great way to do that is explain what your feature is or what it does um, and describe the use case. Like, why would you use this? So often, you know, when I think of use cases, I think of design systems and style guides where they're describing maybe the difference between a, a link and a tertiary button, which looks very much like a link. So why would you use one over the other? Um, and so if you know your app doesn't work for a particular use case, just be transparent about it. I massively respect people who can admit that like you know they they haven't covered like a specific use case or like um I I guess my point is like I just respect when when people or companies are very transparent about like hey I recognize there's a downfall or a pitfall here but like we're aware of it and like potentially working on it so um and it also helps to recommend tooling if if there are specific problems that need solving that you're your app or your technology doesn't cover, maybe recommend something that does work. Yeah, I think that that's a good recommendation. In addition, like I said this before, but having the the ways to bubble up feedback about your documentation so that when people get stuck, you hear about it. I think that that's so important. Just having it be as low lift as possible so that you get people's feedback and make it better for the next people. So we can talk more about like what types of documentation should that we should be writing. And I think, I guess, one of the main things that we should be talking about with this is how do you even use an app that you're making in a fir- in the first place? Like how you're actually using the feature and kind of going through step-by-step step as to why that you've decided to make this, what problem it solves, um, making sure that you're able to spin it up, how you're able to integrate 
this particular app that you are studying documentation for into the app that maybe you're making, uh, how they can work in tandem. Uh, what else? What else uh, from that? Um, I think we've talked about uh, a little bit component documentation, documentation, documentation uh, for internal usage. I, I would love to get a little bit more clarity on like what you're meaning by that, Emma. Well, like if I'm building a component library, let's say a button, what are all the props mm-hmm. that can be passed in to customize it? What information is required? What information is optional? Like obviously the required prop is going to be the child with the text for the button or an icon. Maybe there is no text. Maybe it's an icon, but in that case, you need an ARIA label. Um, so like documenting the expected required optional props, um, mm. things like that. Um, but also like the customizations, like buttons can be big, small, extra large. Um, they can have different colors. They could be primary, secondary, tertiary. Like we need right. to be aware of what all of those things are. Right. Okay. So uh, having a place where you're able to see like all of the default kind of like settings of what actually like is going on when it comes to like that particular app that you were researching documentation mm-hmm. for. Well, yeah, especially if the, you know, this is like a, a library that's going to be incorporated to another app. Like if I'm building right. a component and I have the the code for button, you know, .jsx or .tsx or whatever language I'm using, um, obviously I can go open the file and see what props are required or optional. But often if we're using a library, that is all abstracted away and we don't have access to that very easily. So you need to make it easy for your consumers. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Did you have anything to add to that at all, I think this is a pretty good overview of having guides on how to use the thing, why you should use the thing, how to integrate common technologies with your thing, and then having API documentation, which I think kind of covers the component documentation that's actually, you know, what are the different Mm -hmm. options for this? How do you drill down? What are the possible permutations that you could do of this thing? And then having internal documentation is so important too for your team, how to work with your team, what your team does for your team uh, on your processes. All these things are so important. Like I work for obviously a very large company. We have an internal Google or like how you search for internal documentation on things. So I can definitely speak to that and it being really helpful. And we have like wikis on everything. And it's so necessary when you scale into a bigger and bigger company and you know, when you work for a startup, usually there's no documentation on anything. And so you're just winging it. But I think writing things down is one of the most important ways that you can scale and allow people to replicate what you're doing, but also just to to learn and to make things really systematized and scaled. Because like, that's super dangerous to have all that stuff in your head. First off, like, what, what if you leave? Like, you're just going to kind of like leave your new team members potentially like to the wind, just fending for themselves. If you don't have any of that stuff, like in your head down somewhere, e- even if it's like written, somebody can type it up. Somebody can at least go and look it up to see if that's in record somewhere from your existence. <laughs> and I'm sure that, you know, to your point, you were saying that you have documentation for ways to actually get into contact with you, with your team, how to actually put different types of problems that you need to solve in the queue and what exactly you're working on right now. Cause I think that's super important 
as well for like people that are trying to figure out like who you need to go to to actually get a problem solved. Like that isn't a bad idea to say like, okay, this is what we're currently working on right now. This is what's in our queue. If you like need to be nosy and know our business about that. And I don't know if we'll be able to specifically like do your request anytime soon, but you can leave it in there just in case, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think even those documents on how to request work, how to best communicate with you, you can even Mm. have like a personal readme that you send to people. Here's the best way, like Slack me, don't email me, I'm bad at emailing, like things like that. And I don't have Slack on my phone. I think that that helps people to communicate with you in the best ways. And so it doesn't even have to be a company that has documentation. It can be a person that has documentation. Slack is chaotic good. I hate the beep. I really do. Oh, I've been getting uh, ads for Slack and it has the little ping noise and it gives me anxiety every time. I'm like, I no, <laughs> absolutely not. What the hell advertisements are you looking at? I don't know. At? It was a lot of times when I was, I had a Hulu subscription and there was Slack ads all the time within Hulu. Oh, that is yeah. awful. I'm so be like, sorry. Ping. <laughs> ping. Like, oh shit, yeah. I need to go check my computer. No. No, sir. That sounds awful. I'm so sorry. Oh, gosh. Well, um, should we talk about where we can actually host docs? I think, Allie, you wrote some of this down. Yeah, for sure. So I thought it would just be a good thing to quickly run down where what tools you can use for creating documentation and where to host them. So you can host them on uh, your site. So you could have your own domain and all that. You could also post them on GitHub. Having a readme is so, so, so important to link out to the documentation, to talk about how to install your thing, to have a really short form of the documentation. I think all of that can really help people who just have like a few seconds to look at something. Um, and if your your thing is open source, then having the short form of that is so important. Um, Storybook is another one that we have linked. Uh, and that one becomes really important if you have UI components or a component library. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, speaking of Storybook, you had mentioned like calculating all the different permutations of components if you're doing a component library. Uh, Storybook is wonderful. I used it in when I was teaching my friend in master's course about building a design system with React. Um, it comes with a lot of really great add-ons or um, for building component libraries. So you can add an add-on that not only documents the component, but actually renders them so the consumer can see them and interact with them. Um, oh. they, they have like a ton of different um, add-ons that you can use and they're all super useful. Uh, I do know they, they went through like a, I say pretty recent update, but like realistically, it's probably a year ago now because the pandemic has skewed my timeline of everything. Um, but if you are building component libraries, 10 out of 10 recommend Storybook. The team is great. The technology is great. It's the best that I found for components. But there are a ton of different types of software for writing like more prosaic uh, documentation. So I just did a quick uh, search before you know recording this uh, for different tools that you can use. Bookstack seems to be one. It's a self-hosted platform for organizing and storing information. It's also free and open source. Um, I haven't I haven't personally used it. I was watching a YouTube video briefly called Writing Technical Documentation, and that covers how to use it. So we'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, and then a couple others that I found, Nucleino seems to be one that's pretty cool for team organization specifically. Um, Docusaurus is one that I know at my last company, one of my friends, Khalil, was working with uh, for our our application uh, GoToMeeting. Uh, it seems pretty simple, uh, not simple. I hate that word. It seems pretty straightforward to set up. Um, 
But lastly, I think it's Sydney's uh, favorite technology notion. Because um, she has told us a lot about that. Um, <laughs> notion is really robust application. Um, and I've seen it used for full-on like courses or for uh, design systems and stuff like that. You can definitely use it. But I highly recommend understanding how it works before you just jump in because it is a little confusing. Yes, very much so. Uh, to, to Emma's point, I don't love Notion for that fact. I am a person that like, I need to get something done. And the reason why I'm like using documentation is for like these simple reasons. And as much as Notion is like really great and robust and it's used for different things, for me, it is like way too many things for like the one thing that I need to do. So I will stick with my markdown language. I will stick with GitHub and post all of my stuff there. Thank you very much. <laughs> you said that uh, another documentation tool are some static site generators. So for like Next and Nuxt, Gatsby, Jekyll, I, I'm sure that there are a couple of others that we aren't naming. Um, is there any like specific things that you'd like need to do to set those up at all or like find them? No, I mean, we have a episode on Next.js. I think we may have had one way back in the day about Gatsby too, uh, an early episode, but really these are probably the most common tools that you see for corporate documentation because your documentation doesn't need to be a dynamic site. So it's normally going to be a static site generator that uh, generates the documentation. And so there are different tools that you can use for that. I think a static site is very appropriate for docs because you don't want it to be heavy. You want it to be fast loading. You want it to have good SEO. Um, and so those are some of the common tools that you would use for it. Are we ready for shout outs? Uh, I would really love to hear more about Emma's particular shout out. Uh, yeah, why don't we start with you? <laughs> uh, so I bought a house. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> I'm, I'm living in that house. So um, now I can fill it with 12 kids. Kala is uh, very much against that idea because in Sweden, generally, if you have more than two children, um, it's strange. Um, but yeah, I'm adamant we're going to have 12. A lot. So, uh, <laughs> I am prepared. That's it is, good to it know. It is a lot. Wait, have we seen pictures of this? Have we seen pictures yet? Or did I, I miss know. them? I think I posted a couple, but like we're still unpacking. Like all my clothes are still on the floor. That's so, fair. <laughs> they are now cat beds. <laughs> I'm going to go stalk your Twitter um, then. How about that? <laughs> awesome. Sydney, what's your shout out? Uh, so I have recently been reading the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I have been going through my own move and transition lately, and I'm freaking the fuck out. There's so much to do. There's so much to see. And I will be updating everybody about that soon. But now I'm kind of in that mode where I feel like I am making my fear kind of hold me back from my actual zone of genius. And so going through the big leap has given me a lot to think about when it comes to my processes of how I worry and where exactly that worry gets me when it comes to feeling like I am in a case of lack or in a space of lack and going past that to actually get into my zone of genius where I am emitting that confidence and that happiness that the best case scenario will always come through if that's what you want. So big ups. I really like this book. So we'll see how it goes. And yeah, <laughs> I'll be having some other moving uh, updates for you guys, but that's it. Allie? Cool. Mine is like 
a super random one, but I switched from using the Mint app for tracking my budget to the Copilot app. And I like the UX of the Copilot app a lot better. And it helps you categorize things and tells you about subscriptions and things like that. So I don't know. It's one that I've been enjoying using and wanted to shout it out to not do a book for once. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Well, speaking of books, I I couldn't think of anything relevant to give away for this. So I'm going to be giving away a copy of Hello World by Hannah Fry. I just, I just finished it. And it's one of the best technology books I've read uh, to date. And it's all about being human in the age of algorithms. It's mm. very fascinating. And she in the book talks about like art. So like movies and um, music and how, you know, AI has impacted that. And she talks about cars and the justice system. And it is incredible. And anyone who works in tech absolutely needs to read it. So that's what I want to give away. Um, and if you liked this episode, tweet about it. And I will, we are going to pick one tweeter to win a copy of Hello World by Hannah Fry. Uh, we post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure that you are subscribed to be notified and leave us a review. Um, I guess with that, I hope you all have a great day. Thanks. Thanks. See you guys soon. Bye. <laughs>